What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm going to tell you. It is absolutely, bar none, the best way for authors to make a living selling their books. Are you tired of feeling like you have to be on social media 50 hours a week just to sell a few books and then frustrated when that time doesn't actually lead to any book sales? Are you tired of hearing people say that you just have to be patient with the social media game for a long time so that you can build that following and that trust? Yeah, I was too, because there's only one of me, and ammo solves that problem. Now, here's the deal. It's a system that can actually guarantee results, and I'm not the one doing the guaranteeing, and I don't think that Steve Piper, who founded Ammo, would literally say that it's a guarantee, but what's a guarantee here is that when you spend advertising dollars in a right way, you get results and you're profitable. Okay, the concept here is if you spend a dollar and make two, you are profitable. And Ammo does that for its authors. I want you to check out the link in the show notes because this program has the ability to change your life. And hey, it's not for everyone. If you're a traditionally published author, it might not work for you because your margins will be too small to get profitable advertising on your own. That's something you'll have to take up with your publisher. But if you're self-published, if you're indie published, this thing could be great for you. If you have a few books out, especially if you're a series writer, this is a game changer. The whole podcast is now part of the Ammo family. So you'll notice every Wednesday, this show is Ammo Edition. But even on Mondays, you're listening to a show that exists because this author, this host of the podcast uses Ammo and makes money selling books. It's a beautiful feeling. I encourage you to check it out. I cannot claim to be in the best of moods today. But that's okay. It happens to all of us. It's going to happen to you if it isn't happening to you currently. Uh, It's just part of life. Things happen. So what in the world am I talking about? Before we dive into leveraging libraries to live your writerly dream, I'm just going to give you a real life example of why it's really important extremely important to build many bridges to our readership. And so Mondays are the podcast day that is whatever I feel like talking about. And right now I feel like talking about libraries because it's a project I'm pushing forward for myself, getting books into libraries. I think I said somewhere else, maybe even the last episode I dropped, that I did get seven paperback books into one physical library location for a book club. Uh, And that was really exciting. So that's kind of a little teeny bit of proof of concept starting this process out. We haven't even started sending out our emails, our phone calls, or any of those kind of things to libraries. Uh, I'm working this process right along with you. Uh, But at any rate, that's, that's a bridge that I'm building to sell books and to be more invulnerable as an author. And why is that important? Because this past Thursday, while I was heading out to coach one of my son's baseball games. Yeah, I got roped in. I I even coached the games. I don't just help out at practice. Um, While I was there, I just finished off doing a great interview with an author named Gordon Carroll. I'll be dropping that Wednesday for you. So just in two days, that'll come out. And he is an amazing ammo author who's super inspiring. If you haven't already thought about doing ammo, you're definitely going to think about it after you hear the kind of success that he has had doing this. And he hasn't really been in the program very long. Also didn't seriously start publishing books for terribly long, but I digress. 
While all of that was happening, I had been all day going back and forth with Facebook where I run my ads for ammo. Uh, and I had tried to back off one of my ads that was not profitable. It wasn't behaving the way I wanted it to. And so I pulled back about $10 off of the daily ad spend. And I wanted to apply that to create a new ad at $10 to start reaching out to a new audience to see if I could just gain a little bit of fresh perspective and maybe hijack that sales into hyperdrive again. I noticed something was going on. It wasn't allowing me to publish the ad. And so I reached out to Facebook and I said, hey, I'm having an issue. Something's going on here. And they got back to me and said, well, yeah, we see that there's a problem. Let's look at it a little bit more. And as I was sending them screenshots and having a conversation, they pretty quickly said, oh, this is pretty serious. This actually links to a known issue that's going on right now. So we're going to have to move this up the chain and do a little bit of a, a more in-depth review. It'll be at least 48 hours until you hear back from us. So that in and of itself was really frustrating because that means that I couldn't add any more ads. I was stuck until they finished their review and figured out what was going on, but it got worse. As I'm coaching the game at some point during that period, my ad account got restricted and I'm no longer allowed to advertise at all on Facebook until the issue is resolved. Typically that happens to people who try to subvert Facebook's rules. Maybe they want an ad for cigarettes or tobacco or something like that. And they think that if they use special wording and images, they might be able to get around the ad restrictions. And when they're found out, they're, they're shut down. I've already had it confirmed by people at Facebook that I have not broken any rules, that my restriction has something to do with the known issue of my ad account. But right now I can't sell books. I was selling 17 books a day. I was making a little bit of money. I was slowly scaling. Things were going well. And then the machine came to a screeching halt. And I'm still waiting for a resolution. So let's knock on wood and hope that it's solved soon. But in the meantime, I'm still responsible for writing the next book. I am still responsible for reaching out to libraries. I am still responsible for trying to get people to read my book on Amazon and leave reviews. Build many bridges so that you are invulnerable because as great as ammo is, and it was designed because Amazon shut down the founder, Steve Piper, he designed ammo because Amazon shut him down and he wanted to own his audience. So he was over on Facebook gathering a bunch of emails with his readers. Your email list is another path. And Ammo actually takes care of that through Facebook. But you need other ways to get emails. You need other ways to get readers. You need other roads. And if it feels extremely overwhelming and daunting, you're not alone. I am overwhelmed right now as I'm making this podcast for you. I am scared. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. But, like you, I hope, like you, I'm moving forward. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, D-R-B-M is the antidote. That reminds me of the Wild West and how we just barely made it. Now, T-R-B-M is for writers what time-lapse was for painters, guitar solos and spotlight were for bands, and what chainsaws and icebox were for sculptors. But what does T-R-B-M stand for? Tormented, rampaging, baloney monsters, Texas revolutionaries, burrito Mexicans, or tame, rambunctious baby monkeys. You decide. 
So before we dive in to our library topic of the week, I wanted to talk to you about getting reviews by giving. So I recently stumbled onto a YouTuber who publishes unique reviews, but what's different about his channel is its approachability. It's vulgar, it's accessible, it's fun. Check it out. It's called Thoughts Before REM, like REM sleep, Thoughts Before REM. Uh, and I'm excited to let you know that because I was able to find him through some back and forth on Twitter, he's going to review my book. And so this is me giving him a shout out and he's going to review me. If you don't know this, reciprocating is absolutely fine. If you have the ability to shout somebody out, do so. Don't always expect that they're going to shout you back out, but also don't be afraid to ask them to. Don't be afraid to say, hey, I'll shout you out to my people if you'll shout me out to yours. That's how we build bridges toward each other. And this is a business where we do things for each other. It's okay to reciprocate. Friendships are built through reciprocation. You cannot be a good person if you only give and never take. And you certainly can't be a good person if you only take and never give. So I'm shouting out thoughts before REM. Go look up the link to him in the show notes. Watch his introductory video on YouTube. If it's not for you, you'll know pretty quick because it is vulgar. I will say that. It is vulgar. But the people that like that kind of thing, they're going to love this. I really enjoyed the reviews. I thought they were funny. They were off the cuff. High production value. A little bit absurd. You'll like it. Oh, and also I disagree with his assessment about the rising and setting sun with Luke Skywalker. So if he happens to be listening, I kind of see the merit in the reviewer who was talking about that. But that's the great thing, too, is that we don't always agree with other folks, which is a beautiful bridge. It seems bridges is the theme this week to the next one. And that is that I have a very thorough and very in-depth review of The Nine Lives of Marvita Longhide that is live right now on Jason Chang's website. If you remember, he was a guest of mine on this podcast well, let's say three months ago. Jason Chang scribbles. I'll have a link to that review in the show notes. And let me tell you, it's not a totally positive review. Some of the stuff I feel like is made me smile, made me really happy. He kind of like gathered what I was up to in some ways. And then in other ways, I totally disagreed. And I did what you are never supposed to do is I actually wrote him and I said, hey man, it kind of feels to me like you missed some things. Are you interested in a little bit of a like, you know, backroom dialogue about this? He was really open to it. So we've had some discussions. It's been fun. I don't know if minds have been changed, maybe a little bit his because I'm persuasive and pestering, but totally good feelings between us, I think. Yeah, definitely. Really good feelings between us. <laughs> In this case, do what I say, not what I do. Just don't read your reviews. Honestly, don't read them. Don't interact with them. If people agree to give them to you, make sure that that's done because, again, reciprocity. But it's probably best to keep a distance from reviews because it can be a really heavy weight to carry. I guess I like walking around with rocks in my shoes and gold bullion on my head. That was like the heaviest thing I could think of. Lead is heavier and less valuable and also bad for you. So it's probably like a lead helmet. There we go. So go out there, do some review swaps. It's ethical. It's fun. It does take time. You have to be careful what you agree to and know that if you agree to a review swap and you give somebody a negative review, they might send you a death threat. Um, that hasn't happened to me, but it could. 
because I will never give somebody a review I don't think that they deserve, and I never expect someone to give me a review that I don't deserve, that they think I don't deserve, <laughs> that they think I don't deserve, which includes Jason. I don't think my book is for him, and that's totally okay. My book might not be for you. I'm pretty sure it is, though, and there will be links for it in the show notes so you can buy it. There's another bridge to my audience. My books help me help you entertain the world and make money doing it. All right. So here it is. This is our topic for the week. Libraries. Quality matters. And it's going to cost you. No spoilers here. Quality matters and it's going to cost you. It's the most important aspect of any writer's journey. You simply can't expect to be a best-selling author, much less sell anything, if you choose to publish books that lack professional editing and formatting. And so lately, I have been talking to you about the importance of book covers, and I'm kind of actively starting to shift based on my own experience of book covers. Obviously, mine were designed technically in-house. I didn't pay for them. Then I did go pay for them, and people hated them, so I went back to the unpaid ones that my wife designed. This is all rehashing a subject. But if you're a first-time listener, there you go. That's what happened. My book covers are designed by my wife, who has a degree in art. I've posted her art here before, so you can see it in the show notes. It's really good stuff. And people love her book covers. But there's a few really important people who questioned her book covers. And it made me question her book covers. And long story short, we left them only to come back to them. And now I've had interviews with several authors who have openly and proudly admitted that they designed their own covers and yet they are selling in the six figures. And so what are you left to do but say book covers may be one that if you have a good eye, you could possibly design for yourself? Possibly. I'm in the process of rethinking this. The issue is when we're dealing with libraries, and again, I want to front load this. I will say it later too. But libraries have the ability to be a six-figure customer for you multiple times a year. Libraries have the ability to be a six-figure customer for you multiple times a year. All right, I'm not going to say it again, but if you have to rewind, rewind it so that you get that twice again. This is a big deal. And what that means is that libraries are the ones who are going to be looking at your book covers. And you're not going to be sitting down with every librarian that you pitch. Therefore, you need to be in your Sunday best, whatever the term is, wherever you're listening to me, you need to look professional. You need to look like a person who is ready to do business. And let's go ahead and frame that up. Because I used to work, and I've told this story before, for a company that sold sunglasses. That company didn't mind if its employees had tattoos. That company didn't mind if its employees had nose rings or earrings or eyebrow rings, any kind of ring. You could just, you could pierce your body anywhere that it was visible and they would not have an issue. You could be hired. But you had to wear jeans and you had to wear closed-toed shoes and you had to wear a polo, at least a collared shirt. That was their dress code. They had business shirts as well with the logo that they preferred that you wear. And I think toward the end you had to. But anyway, my point is there's dress codes. I worked at an insurance carrier for a while where I had to wear a tie and that sucked. I hate ties. 
but I liked that job and I made a good amount of money selling insurance. So you got used to putting on the tie. This is what I'm talking about with libraries. You're going to need to understand that when you're talking to librarians, they're the tie-wearing kind of people. Librarians have six-year degrees, at least, in library science. You have to have a master's degree in library science in order to be a librarian. If you don't know that, you do now. And because you have to have a six-year degree in library science, you have seen a crap ton of books from the big five. The big five would be your Knopf, your FSG, your, um, in fact, I can't even name all of them for you, the, the Penguin Random House. Those publishers are going to be the big five. They're the ones that publish all the Pulitzer Prize winning books, all the award winners. They're the ones who publish uh, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton because apparently they publish all the presidents and the president's wives. And the president's husbands, if we ever have a female president, which we will at some point. I'm getting off track. Librarians are used to dealing with the big five. And if you are designing your book cover in-house, I 99% guarantee you they know it. Because they are so used to seeing what a certain kind of cover looks like. So you need to consider if your first and most lasting impression is a picture, because a picture is, as much as you don't want it to be, worth a thousand words. Do you want your first impression to be, oh, that's homemade. I know this person is self-published. Because they're going to figure it out. They are. They're going to figure it out. When it's time to get into the nitty-gritty about what your book is and who it serves and how it serves them and all of those things that you have to do to get into a library, they're going to know. Do you want their first impression to be this person didn't put the money, the time, the effort, the energy... The resources, the materials into bringing a great book in front of me. Because if you do, then you are risking the librarian not even reading the rest of your email, not even looking at your pitch, not even considering your book. Because they figure if you're not willing to spend a couple hundred bucks to get a great cover, why would you be willing to spend several thousand dollars? (coughs) That's right, I said several thousand dollars to get a fantastic editing and a proofreading, and a layout, and a design of your manuscript. Believe it or not, there are authors out there who are so serious about their game that they buy access to specialized fonts so that their half-title page and their title page can look really sharp. That's right, they buy access to fonts. Have you ever thought about buying access to a font? Because I haven't, but I'm starting to. So, but the thing is, all the work you do on a book cover means nothing if the work you do inside the book doesn't merit your readership. And I think I've alluded to this before, but lately I've been swapping reviews with authors on Twitter in an effort to get my reviews on Amazon higher. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm talking about earlier than even in this episode. I'm saying I've, I've hinted at it in previous episodes that I'm working on something that's really effective on Twitter. And I will bring that to you here in the future, or I'll keep kind of threading it into these episodes. But I'm getting the opportunity in many cases to read other authors' books on Amazon in exchange for letting them read mine to give a fair and honest review. It's just marketing. It's cool. What I keep running into... And what's kind of challenging is that there are authors who are published on Amazon who 
don't know the proper usage of commas and periods and quotation marks, who write run-on sentences, who don't do even enough proofreading to make sure that all of their thes are spelled T-H-E instead of T-E-H, who misspell them, they, or they, them. Really easy things that you should catch if you pay a proofreader. And I mean, we're talking an abundance of these kind of mistakes. I've run into it on many occasions over the last week. It's that kind of thing where you realize that if you aren't paying, you're losing readers. I'm getting a review from them. When they read my book, what may happen is they might not like the story. And I may get a negative review on that. But what won't happen is they're not going to run into friction where they don't understand what's happening, where they are confused because sentences don't make sense, where they're confused because punctuation misleads them. They are going to have an easy time, low friction, when they read my book from an understandability perspective because we've done multiple beta reads, we've done multiple proof reads, we've done an edit We have gone the distance with this book to make sure that the manuscript really shines. You're still going to have typos. That's the thing. I don't know of a single book that I've ever read in a first edition that hasn't had a typo. I found typos in Stephen King. I found typos in Dennis Johnson. There are typos in Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. There's a notable typo on the first page of Infinite Jest that's really, really hilarious. Uh, If you know, you know. The thing is, with professional editing, you're going to get rid of the major confusion. And by doing that, you're going to ensure that your readers are commenting on substance, not, you know, details, I guess. There's a word I'm looking for here, but you know what I mean. They're they're going to be looking at the story itself. And generally speaking, if you've gone through all that work... The overwhelming opinion is going to be positive. If you know how to find your readers, you're going to do fine there. Your ratings are going to be good. And when you go to libraries, you're going to get a good reputation of having put out quality books. Now, why should you care about libraries anyways? Because we've gone all this distance, right? I mean, here we are talking about libraries, talking about quality, talking about spending thousands of dollars on a manuscript. Why should you care about libraries? I'm going to remind you from last week, there are roughly 20,000 libraries that can buy copies of your book. And if each one bought just one copy of your paperback and each one bought just one copy of your ebook and each one bought copies of your audiobook, I don't know. I'm, I'm, let, let's just stick actually with paperbacks alone. If they just bought your paperbacks, you're looking at at least $200,000 of gross revenue from every single book for just paperbacks. Every time, if you have that kind of a reputation where the library says, I know for sure that when Jody J. Sperling brings me a book, it is high quality. And I know that he has a readership and I know that his readers come here and that they get something and they benefit and they love it. What do you think happens? They buy the next book. They buy the next book. They buy the next book. If you're publishing two books a year, Stephen King can do it, so I guess all of us can, or not. <laughs> but if you're, if you're able to put out two books a year, and you, the libraries sweep you up in that fashion, that is life-changing money. It's worth spending six, eight grand on the production of your book when you know that you can 
net $80,000, from libraries alone. We're not even thinking about any other channel in this, just libraries. What does it matter if you spend $5,000 to get an audiobook done? What does it matter if you spend $3,000 to get several edits and a proofread done? What does it matter? If the library alone is going to recoup you that times 10. So that's why libraries matter. 20,000 of them, $200,000 of gross revenue. Can you imagine the opportunities that would be presented to you if libraries became your first customer? If before you even focused on anything else, doing your street team and your book launch and all of those kind of clever things that you're hearing about on podcasts right now, what if you were just attentive to libraries in such a way that they loved you? I said it last week and I'll say it again. If there are some listeners of this podcast right now who really take me seriously, this revenue stream is going to dry up quickly so that it's only the top best players who are doing it. But right now, nobody is doing it. Nobody is doing this right now. I look for traditionally published authors to have their audiobooks in libraries, and I can't find them because they are not taking the time to go out to libraries and request that their books be carried. There are so many components to this, though. So it is heavy lifting. It is going to take you time, but you're a professional. Get somebody from Fiverr to do some work for you. And we'll talk about this in future weeks, but I really want you to take some time to reflect. If you're in a position like I am, uh, you have a small income on your published books and you don't have a ton of reviews. You might be wondering if spending all this money is worth it because are librarians even going to take you seriously? Um, And I bet you that the name Dave Ramsey means something to you. Like the little Dave Ramsey on your shoulder is telling you, don't go into debt. Don't go into debt. Because what I'm telling you is if you need to, put the money on a credit card to get the editing done. Put the money on a credit card to get the audiobook made. Put the money on a credit card to get this stuff started. You can get an interest-free credit card in almost every case. I, I, I guess I'm talking to people who have a history of good credit or a history of credit at all, but I'm saying that's an avenue that's open to you. If you're out there right now and you've got a credit card and you can do this and you choose not to because Dave Ramsey told you it was stupid, well, guess what? Dave Ramsey's wrong. If you're really irresponsible with that, listen to Dave. But once you have money and once you have a responsible track record with money, This is something that's worth taking on debt for. There are no or next to no businesses that don't take on debt. And this is just a little editorial note because the thing I'm about to say, after reflecting on it and and thinking about cutting it out of the podcast, I decided to keep it in partly for the personality that it shows in me, but also because I believe that there is some truth to it. But I wanted to nuance the forthcoming comment by saying that there are plenty of people out there who give free will donations to causes they believe in, and it has nothing to do with guilt. And sometimes that money is even used for the thing that they think it's going to be used for. It's just, I happen to know that some of the free will donations I gave went to help a certain person soak in a hot tub on Sunday mornings before the sermon, a hot tub that I was paying for, that was purchased with my free will donations. Anyways, let's get back to the podcast with that nuance. And if you're offended, I apologize. My opinions are my own and they're not meant to reflect yours. The only businesses I've heard about in my life that can do it, that can scale without taking on debt are churches. 
Churches can do it because they have people that they can guilt into tithing 10% because it's what God wants from you. And when you tithe 10%, God is supposed to give back to you in abundance. And so a lot of people will give to churches. And I've seen a lot of churches before be able to like save up a huge war chest of money so that they can buy a giant building and get smoke machines and play really loud electric guitar songs about raising your hands and stuff. If I'm sounding a little bitter, I came up from the church, folks. You know, I still have I still have really strong feelings about those things. But other than churches, if you're not a church and you can't guilt somebody into buying your book, you need to have a really high quality product and it's okay to take out some debt to do that. I'm giving you permission. Yell at me if you want. I would love to get feedback and comments in the notes that I'm a dummy. Go ahead. Do your worst. But businesses require investment. And I know you don't want to think of your books like a business. I know it. I'm an artist too. I I got mad. I talked to you earlier about sending a rebuttal to Jason because I didn't like his review of my book and I felt like it neglected some really important aspects of what I had done. That's the artist in me being like, how dare you neglect my thoughtfulness? I mean, my main character's name is Luke Evelyn Mia. Luke E. Mia. She's called Little Cancer. Get it? Leukemia? Cancer? How didn't you see that? And if right now your response was like my podcast co-host Chewy's and you're like, hey, calm down, buddy. You're right. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. (laughs) Can't make everybody happy. (laughs) I cannot do this well without a lot of help. And even with a lot of help, I can't make everybody happy. But I do treat it like a business. You should too. Treat it like a business. It is an art and art is a business. And if you want to make great art for the rest of your life, you need to treat it like a business. Artist, business, put on both hats, go to work. In closing, if you are a traditionally published author, right now you're probably thinking, hey, this is all great, but I don't control how my book cover looks. I don't control my formatting. I have editors who are paid to do all of this stuff. I have proofreaders who are paid to do all of this stuff. So this was basically a waste of my time. And if I had thought about this episode and structuring it maybe a little better, I might have at least teased in the beginning that there's still something here for you. Because you're still in control when it comes to how you pitch libraries, putting together a professional pitch deck. And so here's a couple of tips for for traditionally published authors. If you're listening right now and you're thinking, hey, libraries sound like a really cool thing, but I'm not sure I can do it. A, yes, you can. You don't need your publisher to reach out to libraries on your behalf. You can actually reach out to libraries if you understand that every single publisher out there right now is using Ingram Spark then all you have to do is say, hey, my books are available in Ingram Spark. This is the publisher I'm published with, and this is why you should carry my book. It's going to be the same format. And just like self-published authors, you want to make sure that your pitch deck, and we'll get to pitch decks in a later episode, but you want to make sure your pitch deck looks like a suit and tie. It's going into a library with master's degree librarians, and they expect a certain thing. And your pitch deck is is just as liable to look unprofessional and poorly designed as a self-published author. We're all in this together when it comes to pitching libraries, every one of us. All right, last cool thing for you traditionally published authors, this is the one place where you and self-published authors make the same dollar. Because when you sell a book into a library, they pay the wholesaler's price, which this is really weird, 
But if you've ever set up a book in Ingram Spark, you've noticed that you have to double the price of your book for libraries. That's the wholesaler price. They pay double from a wholesaler. It's the only place where wholesale is backwards. Um, but that's what happens from Ingram Spark is say you price your book at $22.99 on uh, Amazon normally, then you would charge Ingram Spark librarians to go through the portal $45 if I did my fast math correct there, and I think I did. $45 for a copy of your book. And then you're gonna get a pittance of that. But so so am I. You know, if you're traditionally published and I'm not, we both get the same amount of money at the end. I'm pretty sure I'm right there anyways. You know what? I am. Just trust me. <laughs> Alrighty. That is what we have got for you. So just like last week, I'm gonna try leaving you with a teeny bit of of homework. Your homework for this week's library episode is to look at the books that you've already published and reflect. Are they professionally designed? Have you developed a cover that librarians want to shelf? Is your editing and proofreading and your manuscript at a professional level? Are you afraid to spend money on doing this whole process? And if you're afraid, <laughs> if you're afraid, if you're afraid to spend money publishing your books, ask why you expect to make money on something you didn't invest in. Until next week, write hard and think about investing in yourself. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?